Welcome to the Perp Web Podcast, hosted by Joe Bosch. And so this is one of the talks that Tammy was going to give, and actually I was going to give it during one of the other programs, but our schedule has just been so incredibly crazy um, with everything that's going on. We still have uh, COVID ECMO left, but it's been slowing down for us some. I don't know what other people out there are seeing. Certainly the society has opened up tremendously. Uh, I go into places now and I don't see anybody wearing a mask or anything like that. Most restaurants I go to, other businesses, some businesses are still asking for people to do that. I've gotten so used to it, even though I hate it, that I still wear it in the grocery store. Uh, but uh, we do have, you know, a few patients left, but we have also just been incredibly busy with hearts. And it's sort of like it's been a, I don't know if it's just a a swing of the pendulum from these patients who were on the waiting list, essentially not coming in because of COVID, but we've just had a massive rush of cases. And some of them have been a little more complicated than a lot of the other ones that we're used to seeing. Haven't seen as many chip shots. We've had some very complex, difficult cases to do, and I think these are patients that just got held off for a long time. But no, you can go ahead to the slides. I'm sorry. I made to do that. So I'm your guest host, Joe Basha. This is a Tammy Sparacino Journal Club presentation, and the topic uh, is lower or higher oxygen targets for acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. So when we see patients that come into the operating room, to the uh, ICU, whether it be for COVID or whether it be influenza, influenza, whether it be aspiration pneumonia, whatever the situation may be, it's they have an acute hypoxic respiratory failure and uh, how do we treat them? Do we treat them with lower or higher oxygen targets? So the methods of this talk, by the way, which was published in the uh, New England Journal of Medicine January of 2021 and updated on April 8th of 2021. So in this multi-center trial, the authors randomly assigned 2,928 adult patients who had recently been admitted to the ICU uh, with gr equal or greater to 12 hours before randomization and who were, I'm sorry, less than or equal to, forgive me, and who were receiving at least 10 liters of oxygen, so that would be sort of a high flow oxygen in an open system, or had uh, an FiO2 inspired oxygen content of at least 50%. So they were set at 50% in a closed system, that being on a ventilator, I guess that would also uh, uh, qualify BiPAP as being part of that. And uh, to receive oxygen therapy targeting a PaO2 of either 60 millimeters of mercury, which was considered the lower oxygenation group, or 90 millimeters of mercury in the higher oxygenation group for a maximum of 90 days. The primary outcome was, with, was, uh, was death within that 90-day period. So patients with acute hypoxemic respiratory failure in the intensive care unit are treated with supplemental oxygen, but the benefits and harms of different oxygenation targets are unclear. We hypothesize, this is the author speaking, that using a lower target for partial pressure of arterial PA or the PaO2 would result in lower mortality than using a higher target. Now, you know, this was interesting. This this slide sort of caught my, my attention, and I was trying to figure out 60 to 90, 
what is the actual difference in oxygen content. But of course, I'm not really sure, and I'll go through all these slides, and I'll kind of say this again. I'm not really sure if what this is about is the PaO2 being lower or higher, but what you have to accomplish or what you have to do, meaning higher inspired O2, in order to achieve that higher PaO2. And I think it's so multifactorial. Uh, it was a good paper. I recommend you reading it. Um, but it left me a little bit with more questions than it did necessarily give me answers. And I'll explain a little bit more about my quandaries with this as we move forward. Um, and one different article, a small multi-center randomized trial involving patients undergoing mechanical ventilation in the ICU, those investigators, now that's not these investigators, we're talking about a different uh, uh, presentation or different paper now, found that targeting a peripheral oxygen saturation of between 88 to 92% as compared with a value of 96% or above was feasible without evident harm. Again, we can discuss that as we go forward. In a single center randomized trial, this is yet a different paper, Patients in the ICU who were treated with a PaO2 target of between 70 to 80 millimeters of mercury had a lower mortality than those who were treated with a PaO2 target of up to 150 millimeters of mercury. In addition, a PaO2 target of 55 to 80 millimeters of mercury is often referred to as the standard of care in patients with acute respiratory distress syndrome or ARDS as it was described in several trials performed by the actual ARDS network. The preference among clinicians for a lower oxygen target in the ICU has been confirmed in a multinational survey in which 80% of the respondents would accept a PaO2 target of 60 or lower in clinical trials. So here are all of the references for the uh, 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 papers that I just uh, talked about in, in brief. And I also want to talk about, again, the issue of, is it accepting the lower PaO2 for the PaO2's sake or to reduce the amount of inspired or the percentage of inspired oxygen that you have to give the patient? And how does that interact with ECMO when you take that aspect part of it and add it to it? And so, you know, we all know, and I'm, a, you know, I, not to be too rudimentary, but we all understand that high inspired oxygen uh, via the ventilator or, or otherwise long-term is detrimental to the lung tissue, the alveolar tissue itself. And uh, of course, you can also have ocular issues, ocular problems that can occur uh, as well. So high inspired oxygen content is not something that's good. We're designed to live off 21%. That's how our physiology is made, right? Recently, a systemic review and meta-analysis showed that lower oxygenation targets were preferable in acutely ill patients. Again, I don't think I really agree with this, not on, its, on that merit. On the reducing the inspired oxygen content, yes, but having a lower oxygen target I'm not so sure I agree with. And I'll, you know, explain again as we move forward. 
However, the liberal oxygenation versus conservative oxygenation in ARGE trial, which is LOCO2, was stopped prematurely because of a higher frequency of mesenteric ischemia and a higher 90-day mortality in the lower oxygen group than in the higher oxygen group. Now, was that because the lower oxygen group required maybe more pressors, levofed, higher amount? I, I don't have an answer to that, but something to be concerned about. Or it could have just been physiologic responding to a, uh, a lower oxygen uh, 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 content or oxygen delivery, DO2, of that patient. In the large intensive care unit randomized trial, comparing two approaches to oxygen therapy, the ICU ROC study as it's known, investigators found no uh, between group differences in the number of ventilator free days or in mortality within 28 days with higher versus lower, again, uh, PO2 uh, uh, values. And here are the uh, references for those particular uh, studies that were done. So I know we've all seen this before. We all understand. In fact, John Ingram did a great uh, presentation on the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. But I want to go over it again so that we're all just sort of on the same page with this. If you look at, for example, a PO2, we're going to say down here of 50. I'm sorry. Yeah, PO2 of 50. A PO2 of 50 following this line up is a saturation of about 88%. And if you look at this dissociation curve, you notice that as the PO2, or the rather the saturation climbs, you notice how steep a curve it is for these lower PO2 values. But as you get up towards the top of the saturation, this curve really flattens out. So, and if you'll excuse me all for just one second, is everything okay? Yes. I'm sorry, forgive me everybody. Okay, good, thank you. So it's really important to, to take note that the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve is, uh, is very sharp in the beginning and then flattens out as your saturation reaches about 85, 88% up until you get to 100%. And there's very little continued increase in the saturation for the PO2 going up. And why is that? And this is also very, very important. Oxygen content, the thing we're really concerned about is your SAO2, your saturation, arterial saturation, times 1.34 times the hemoglobin, but plus 0 0.003 times the PO2 measured in milliliters per deciliter. So you're understanding that the contribution of the blood, the PO2, the blood measured. Hold on one second, guys. I'm sorry. Can I, I, I can't, I, is everything okay? I mean, I just, I, I'm sorry. Thank you. It's really, I'd like, I don't know what you're saying. Well, I can't, okay, I won't look at you, but I can hear you. If you can help me out. Um, anyway, what I was trying to say is, is that there's very little oxygen dissolved in the plasma. You really need to be concerned about the saturation. That's what's important because the hemoglobin carries so much more oxygen and is so much larger a contributor 
to the overall oxygen content. So that's very important for y'all to understand. So here is a breakdown of the patients. There was a total of 4,192 that were assessed for eligibility. I won't go through all of the exclusions. 2,928 were randomized. 1,462 were assigned to the lower oxygen group, 1,466 to the higher oxygen group. And when it was all said and done, 1,441 were analyzed in the lower and 1,447 were analyzed in the uh, higher oxygen content group. You keep looking at me. It's making me nervous. Okay, and here are the uh, characteristics. And what I, was really, what I was really impressed by was the homogeneity of the characteristics. They were very, very, very closely matched. So that was really good. Um, in the lower oxygen content group, the invasive ventilation, again, I had to take note of the fact that I felt like everything was very well matched and very uh, similar. Um, and again, with the lactate levels, the use of inotropes, patient uh, percent, number, percentage, median, highest dose of norepinephrine, all very closely matched, and the median sofa, SOFA score was also very closely matched. So I was very impressed with how closely they matched all of these patients. In terms of oxygenation and ICU intervention, the use of mechanical ventilation, prone positioning, inhaled vasodilators, the use of ECMO, circulatory support, renal replacement therapy, and, drug, and blood transfusions were similar in the two groups. And again, I showed you those, those graphs, all of that data. It was very closely matched. I was very impressed by that. Um, in this particular slide, the red is the higher PO2 group, and the uh, blue is the lower oxygenation group. And you can see that uh, as you go along what their ranges were. So it ranged quite a bit, uh, uh, especially when you started getting out to day 60, 70, 80, and 90. And uh, what's very interesting that in the lower oxygen tension group that was assigned to it, there's actually sometimes when it's higher than that of the uh, higher oxygen content group or higher uh, uh, oxygenation group. And I think that's because those patients were more of the were struggling at that point in time. It seemed to start out pretty easy, but then as time went on, these patients became, I think, more and more difficult to manage. The fraction of inspired oxygen, and what I just got through saying, I think bears out in this, uh, in this where you see the lower oxygen group started needing a higher towards the, when you get back out here, to the, to the end, let me see if I can do the laser right here. You start looking out this way and you'll notice that the FiO2, your inspired FiO2 had to start going up on some of these patients, whereas with the higher, it started going down. And that may have been an indication of survival, I'm not really sure, but their survival really in this, in this uh, study was similar in the groups. Uh, we'll talk about their conclusions. The arterial oxygen saturation, it trends just like the PaO2 does, which you see there. And so much of that can be affected by the patient's cardiac output, their metabolic rate, their level of 
uh, sedation, whether they're on paralytics, their temperature, so many things are going to affect and contribute to these numbers that we're looking at. Um, though I think they did a great job of case matching, I think there's a lot of unanswered questions on any one of these individual cases. Uh, primary outcomes, if you look at the outcomes, you'll see over here in the p-values for everything from death to uh, percentage of days alive without life support to serious adverse events, shock, myocardial ischemia, ischemic stroke, intestinal ischemia, you'll note that there is no statistical difference between the lower or the higher oxygen content groups. And indeed, when you look at their results, and this is directly from their paper, at 90 days, 618 of 1,441 patients, 42.9% in the lower oxygen group, and 613 of 1,447, remember they had a little higher, or 14.4% in the higher oxygen content group, had died. So risk of mortality, just based on that, is absolutely no different. The adjusted risk ratio is 1.02 with a 95% confidence interval of CI. And uh, at 90 days, there was no significant between group difference in the percentage of days that patients were alive without life support or in the percentage of days they were alive after hospital discharge. The percentage of the patients who had new episodes of shock, myocardial ischemia, ischemic stroke, or intestinal ischemia were similar as well in both groups with a p-value of 0.24. And in their conclusion, among adult patients with acute hypoxic uh, respiratory failure in the ICU, a lower oxygen target did not result in lower mortality than a higher target at 90 days. So some of my individual concerns, no data was available to differentiate between ECMO and non-ECMO patients because that's going to make an enormous difference. How you're managing the ventilator and what you can do with uh, when you're on ECMO versus not on ECMO is vastly different, not to mention on ECMO carries its own set of, you know, quite serious uh, 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 morbidity risks. Um, what was the cannulation strategy? Was it VV or VA, or was it some kind of exotic cannulation? Where were the ABGs drawn from? That's also very important. If you're VA ECMO and you're drawing it from the contralateral, let's say with peripheral cannulation, you're drawing it from the contralateral femoral artery, your numbers may look great. If you're drawing it from the left radial, you may actually think you're right within the guidelines of the lower oxygen group, but if you're drawing it from the right radial, it could be significantly higher depending on what your underlying cardiac function is. Are you centrally cannulated, which of course that would make a whole di big, big difference, or cannulated in the axillary. There's so many different things that did not get answered in this. And so I will say that though a great study um, I think we have to look at it a little bit, you know, even though I think their outcomes mimic what I would expect. 
I, I, and I'll talk more about my view on lower versus higher oxygen content here in just a moment. No data to differentiate between CRRT and non-CRRT patients. No data to differentiate between nitrous oxide versus non-nitrous oxide. No cardiac output and DO2 vis-a-vis goal-directed therapy was assessed in this. And ELSO guidelines actually recommend a target SAO2 of 80 to 85% at rest ventilator settings so long as cardiac output and hemoglobin levels are adequate. And what that really means to me isn't that cardiac output and hemoglobin levels are adequate. What does that actually mean? I think it really comes down to DO2. I think the key to uh, managing patients that are critically ill to give them the best opportunity for survival is DO2. The three best is DO2, DO2, and DO2. I think that's uh, very important. I frankly think 80 to 85% uh, for saturation is just a little bit too low. Um, in fact, if you look at that, let me just go right back to this slide, a saturation of 80% that we look at here is going to give you a PO2 somewhere around 44, 40, 40, 42 to 44%, uh, PO2, I'm sorry, 42 to 44. You know, that's pretty low. And I'm going to talk about these, these numbers here uh, with the app. Let me do this first. There was another study that I found, um, which was very good in the Journal of Thoracic Disease, bedside troubleshooting during venovenous membrane oxygenation. Now, as a disclaimer, I'm going to tell you that if you look at the red dash, and I'll highlight it right here, and you see it says filter dysfunction, and you see here it says change filter, they mean oxygenator. Um, it about drives me crazy when people talk about the oxygenator and call it a filter. It's not a filter. It is an oxygenator. It's essentially an external artificial lung, uh, a gas exchange device that adds oxygen and removes CO2. So I think that that's something that may have just been vernacular. I'm not sure where these uh, uh, people, these public, these uh, uh, authors were located but that could just be a language thing, but it is a glaring uh, 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 improper syntax, if you will. No, maybe not syntax. It's the improper word to use for the oxygenator. So if you look at a chest X-ray and ABG and it suggests cannula malpositioning or recirculation, you look at the X-ray and you see the, uh, the cannula using single cannula is all the way down into the area of the liver, it's probably in too deep. You can sometimes look at the tubing and you can run a venous blood gas coming out of the line. And if it's very high, certainly going to be suggestive of, uh, in fact, if it's 88% uh, uh, or higher, I guess, um, it's very suggestive that you have recirculation. But there is a much better way to do it, and that is with the use of the transonic ELSA meter. Um, it will give you a, you can do run three of them. I think that it makes sense to do that back in the old days when we did thermal dilution swans. We always ran three. You can run three of these. It's going to cost you about 60 cc's of volume into the patient, um, 20 cc's each injection. And the ELSA meter is very useful at giving you not only recirculation, but oxygenated blood volume. So if you're using a low heparinization protocol or no heparin, no anticoagulant strategy, 
um, it'll give you oxygenator blood volume because if the oxygenator blood volume goes down, the only thing that could be occupying that space is in fact a clot. But if the answer is yes, then they say to come over here and reposition the cannulas, if cannula or cannulas, if you have persistent hypoxemia, then you go over here and you consider is there oxygenator dysfunction, further lung complications, or low pre-oxygen SAO, oxygenator SAO2, and that could be because of low cardiac output, which is a real problem, or very high extraction. If that is the case, and the problem is not resolved, but you think it is oxygenator dysfunction, you can change the oxygenator. You can treat the specific complications by possibly um, uh, slowing down the metabolic needs of the patient, reducing the temperature a little bit, uh, anesthetizing or sedating them heavier. Uh, you can do some things to increase the DO2. Maybe they need a blood transfusion, higher hemoglobin. Maybe they need a little bit better cardiac output, and they need uh, a little Dobutrex or something like that. Um, there's a lot of options that you can consider, but you have to look at it. You know, you can't just look at one thing. You have to take everything into consideration as far as what's going on with the patient at this moment, right? If you have persistent, oops, sorry, persistent hypoxemia, let me see if I can make this work. Yeah. Then you come over here and you re increase the ECMO flow up to six or seven liters. If it stays persistent and your hemoglobin is less than 10, consider a transfusion, which is here. If the answer is no, then uh, you increase your, you might have to take into consideration what if it's VV ECMO. Now, this is VV ECMO. If your ECMO flow and your cardiac output ratio is less than 60%. And so what happens in this circumstance, a very important concept, if you're VV ECMO and you're flowing five liters, but the cardiac output is 10 liters and the patient has no significant contribution of their native pulmonary function, their pulmonary function is, is very minimal at best, then you're only going to be running through the oxygenator 50% of their cardiac output. So as that, with some level of recirculation, it's never zero. So if you're flowing five liters, you're recirculating, let's say 20%, which would be fantastic, that's gonna be one liter. So you have an effective ECMO flow of four, and your cardiac output is 10 liters or eight liters, you can, and, your, and your venous saturation is 65%, you can easily see where that's going to then mix together and that's what's gonna end up in the left atrium and left ventricle and be pumped back out to the systemic circulation. So when you draw a gas and you say, I'm flowing five liters and, and I'm at 100% and my ECMO saturation is 100% with a PaO2 of 360, why is the patient's saturation only 89%? It could very well be that your ECMO flow to cardiac output ratio is too large. So sometimes slowing the cardiac function down is a better option if the patient is getting sufficient DO2. Um, if the uh, hypoxemia is resolved here, then monitor for hemo uh, hemolysis because of the high flows. If this is no, then consider uh, 
Hmm. I'm not sure what PP is. Yeah, I'm not sure. And then uh, if it's yes, you come over here and consider hypothermia or you consider using esmolol, a good beta blocker, as I said. So that's very good. It's very short acting and it will really slow them down. I wonder if I have that in my notes. No, I don't. Okay, very good. So I want to go to the app if I can, and I want to illustrate for you the importance of, uh, of your uh, DO2. So is it, is it married to it yet? Is it still married to it, or I need to read or do it again? Screen mirroring. Okay. There, come up. Oh, good. Okay. But I don't see it. Oh, there it goes. Okay. So now, okay, so if we take in this particular case, and I have it already done, so I'll just hit calculate again. If we take a hemoglobin of 10, which I guess I can't really show you, can I? So you take a hemoglobin of 10, you take an SAO2 of 85% and a PAO2 of 50%, that's going to give you an oxygen content, arterial oxygen content of 11.71 milliliters per deciliter, okay? So for the sake of just this argument, because none of this will make sense, right, if I did this, if I doubled the PaO2 to 100, now you couldn't have a PaO2 of 100 with a saturation of 85%, but I'm gonna do this for the sake of the argument. It only moves it up to 11.87. But if I go over here and I change the saturation to 100% from 85, 13.91. Now, what does that really mean? Well, okay, if I take DO2, which is here, delivery of oxygen, I put a cardiac output in of 5 liters per minute, and I put in 11.71 for my oxygen content from the very beginning, if you remember, that gives me a DO2 of 585, which if you notice on the app, it's showing up as red because it's abnormal. And up here where the eye is that I'm gonna press, that actually gives you the upper right corner, all of the parameters, the equation, and uh, what is normal. But if I change this to the 13.9, all things remaining equal, it's still abnormal, but it's 695, which is significantly different than the small little incremental change of the 11.87. And if I just do it for the sake of that argument, 11.87, which was, if you remember, doubling the PO2, that only takes it from 585 to 593. So you see how important saturation is, and if you go back to that formula that we discussed, and this is key, the saturation is 1.34 times the hemoglobin. The PO2 is only 0 0.003 times the, PO2, the measured PO2 in millimeters of mercury which is in milliliters per deciliter, which is the result that you'll get. So the amount of content that's dissolved in the plasma is very, very, very low in comparison to that that is bound to the hemoglobin. 
and that's why hemoglobin is so critically important for uh, uh, DO2 for delivering oxygen. I think we run um, uh, hemoglobins too low, uh, and I would really like to see them be higher. Uh, but you know, it depends on the practice. It depends on a lot of factors. It depends on the age of the patient. It depends on the metabolic condition of the patient. It depends on the function of their heart. Uh, a lot of factors influence whether we should use a higher or lower hemoglobin. And those arguments have been made as well, uh, where they have done low oxygen uh, or low hemoglobin transfer, uh, transfusion trigger down in the 6 range, and liberal, which keeps the hemoglobin up around 10. Um, there are risks and complications associated with giving patients blood transfusions. Certainly recognize that as well. Uh, but from a risk-benefit ratio perspective, I think patients do better from what my eyeballs tell me, not from the data, uh, do better with a higher hemoglobin than they do with a lower hemoglobin. That's, uh, that's my, my professional observation um, over many years looking at many critically ill patients. So uh, that's my preference, though the data does not support that. Um, I have to, you know, obviously make that clear. Uh, but I think sometimes the data is uh, good, but I think it sometimes doesn't take into account a lot of individualization when you're dealing with patients. Um, this patient and that patient, though they may look matched uh, demographically or with their, uh, you know, various parameters that you may be measuring, doesn't really mean they're the same patient. So I think we have to take these things uh, into consideration when we make the decision about uh, how high or how uh, low to allow the hemoglobin to be or to go, as the case may be. Um, okay, are there anybody wants to call in? You didn't open the phone lines. So, oh, they are. Were they been open the whole time? Uh, I saw you push a button over there. Is that, was, it wasn't on, was it? Magic, did you find a nurse yet? Looking, okay, good. We're still looking for a nurse. The phone lines are open. I'm going to take a short break, maybe two or three minutes, not very long, come back and do my second lecture. And if we have any good questions on FaceTime or Twitter or LinkedIn or YouTube or somebody wants to call in, don't forget, we've got the hat, we have the cap, we have the, what did they win, the cup? Do you remember? The cup, okay. Oh, it was the cap, the cap, the cap, an extra call, okay. And we might even spin it again for the T-shirt if against, but you got to call in. And this is some pretty stylish stuff. So I think you should call in. I also think you need to find the transonic ELSA meter, and I think you need to find out more about it. If you are doing ECMO, you should absolutely have that device. No question about it. I believe in it. I have used it. Um, I wish I had more of them, but you don't have to leave it in one patient's room. You can take it patient to patient, as the case may be. But I think you should at least evaluate the device because I think it has tremendous utility, a great tool. And I think you should go on the Apple Store or go on the Google Play and get that MediWeb app because I'm going to tell you, it's a really good tool. I, as I said, I do a lot of ECMO, and I use this tool. Um, it even has a calculation in there, and one of my good friends, Sharon, Sharon Kroslowitz, she just got through teaching one of our young uh, uh, new hires.
from Rush. Her name is Ramsha. I'll just say her name. Her name is Ramsha uh, Asmat, and uh, she is uh, doing fantastic. She actually did a case yesterday. Um, she is uh, she is extremely smart, uh, very very talented. She tolerates me more than uh, the guys here in the uh, in the uh, over in the 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 workings do, uh, and uh, put up with my nonsense. But she's fantastic, and uh, she was teaching her the formula for deciding how long you can go on your e-cylinder tank. And I'm like, Sharon, it's in the app. It's, it's just in the app. If you go to the app and you go to O2 remaining in e-cylinder, we've thought of everything. It's a good app. Go check it out. It's $2.99 for the big app, $99 for the small app. Um, if you just need it for IV drug use uh, dosing and so forth, but either way, check it out. And uh, we'll take a five-minute break, and let's say five minutes. And uh, I'll be right back for my second half of this. Thank you.